Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. Tonight, my guest is the filmmaker for the film Inside Iraq, The Untold Stories. If this is your first time listening to V-Radio, please visit my website, v-radio or v-radio.org. There you will find uh, more shows like this one. You can also, uh, basically by clicking archives, uh, you can also go to my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries to watch on the Internet. Um, And if you like what you hear, this is a listener basically listener-supported effort. This is my job. I'm an independent journalist, and I work for you. So consider you know, a donation, once again, at v-radio.org. Um, so today my guest is Mike Shiley. Mike, welcome to, the, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. No problem. You know, um, I had just finished watching your show, uh, your movie, uh, Inside Iraq, uh, The Untold Stories, on Netflix streaming, um, and decided I needed to contact you immediately because I really enjoyed your film and I really want the listeners here to have an opportunity to kind of hear what went into that. And we're also going to talk a little bit about your other two films and your future projects that we were discussing. So first of all, Mike, as I told you before the show started today, um, I have a tradition, and that tradition is that whenever I bring someone on the show, I ask them to kind of explain to the audience what made them to decide to become an activist. What was the precipice or the the turning point in your life that made you decide to go to you know from being somebody who is part of the world, you know, watching TV and trying to have 2.5 kids and you know a cat's guzzler car, to being someone who wanted to make the world better. Okay, well, um, in 1994, I was um, doing what every a lot of college kids did and that was I was doing a little backpack trip through Europe doing the Eurail um pass and you know kind of going sort of bar hopping from you know European country to European country and I wound up in um Finland and someone told me at a youth hostel that I could have an opportunity for the first time to visit Russia and growing up as a as a 45 year old I grew up in I say the probably the tail end of the Cold War, and it, I was always reinforced by my father that you know there could be an opportunity where you know when I become military age that I could be facing the Russians on the battlefield as a soldier. So to be able to go see Russia during the Boris Yeltsin years when Russia was just broken up off the Soviet Union and everything was in upheaval, I decided to take a chance and go, and to go to what was an interesting paradox because it was a first world country that had been reduced to a third world country. And it was that not only was it seeing real people suffering for the first time, but it was seeing the rubble of an empire, a proud empire that defeated the Nazis and, 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 and stood up against the United States for 50 years um, to see them defeated uh, and to travel through Russia uh, during that time period was an amazing um, impact for me. And ever since I did that, I decided that I was going to dedicate the rest of my life not only to world travel, but to traveling in third world countries. And as a result of that, I wound up um, living and working and um, um, spending a lot of time in Israel, in uh, Jordan, Syria, Egypt, uh, those areas, and then again in Cambodia, Laos, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, Burma. And so I got a real, what I feel in Nepal, 
and I got what I feel is a real grounded perspective of what people around the world go through that you know don't live in the United States, that don't live in the lifestyle that we live, that are not part of the one percent um, crowd, and that truly really suffer. And so, f- because of that experience, I dedicated my life to making films. I dedicated my life to world travel, and I dedicated to helping American people become more—I don't know—more focused on the world around them, besides just that idiot at the stop sign that didn't stop in their SUV. <laughs> no, believe me, I, I totally understand. Um, especially being somebody who ran for Congress at one time, you know, I, I definitely know what you mean when you're talking to people who just have no idea of what's going on in the world. And I definitely acknowledge, you know, your, your experiences with that. I've only traveled to Ireland. It's the only other country I've ever been to. And that still was a very life changing experience you know, to experience just the way different people look at the world. And I definitely envy you, you know, being able to do way more travel. I, in fact, I was thinking the same thing while I was watching your documentary was, man, I wish I was over there with a camera, but it's so dangerous. And, you know, so now I guess let's kind of get into that, actually. Um, what made you decide to risk your life, you know, put on a flak jacket and a, you know, with a um, press pass and go over to Iraq? Well, you know, there's a lot of Americans in Iraq, obviously. There's military, there's uh, journalists, there's uh, contractors over there, there's other nefarious uh, uh, groups of people over there. But I, as a unique individual, I went over there as a private American citizen. Um, <laughs> this isn't something I really talk about a lot, but I made a fake press pass at Kinko's State. Um, saying that I was an ABC News reporter, mm-hmm. and I cashed in airline miles and flew to Amman, Jordan, where I presented my fake press pass at the ABC News uh, bureau in Amman, Jordan. Surprisingly enough, they let me in, and I was in on ABC News and uh, uh, wound up getting one story on ABC National News and a lot of stories on a, a, a number of ABC affiliate stations. And what's kind of funny is, I mean, I've never been to film school. I'm not a journalist. I I don't write particularly well. Um, but I am a was a concerned American with a camera, with a desire to learn, with a love of history, a fascination with, with war, which obviously, I mean, war is terrible, but I'm still fascinated by it from a historical perspective. Sure. And and I went there with just sort of the sort of the I guess you'll see in the film it's more of a this wild-eyed uh, uh, excuse me wide-eyed uh, lonely planet backpacker kind of person who you get the feel from the film that that I sort of thought I was in Jordan but I wound up in Iraq and and now I'm traveling through trying to film everything I see and that's kind of what the film is like and um, so the interesting perspective is is that everybody in Iraq who's there today has a message that they want you to believe about their experience. And that message often is funded by either the military or a corporation or a media outlet, all of them large corporations because Iraq is so, so uh, insecure. But inside Iraq is the one, what I believe one of the few films out there that does two things. Number one, it shows the war in Iraq up front. You know, we go into combat, 
I'm with the military. We actually do. You see the war in Iraq. And number two, it shows the people of Iraq for who they are in a, in a non-judgmental basis. Some of them support and love George Bush, and some of them hated him, and some of them lost. Many of them lost their lives for him. And then the other thing that it does is it, it kind of shows you sort of the the kind of average Joe look at the war in Iraq without being overly political. Mm-hmm. And yeah, my inexperience um, at not knowing how to make a film um, is is evident. But that's not the point. The point is not how good do I make a film. The point is. What is it really like in Iraq when you're not being lied to by some large corporation? And that is, I believe, enough for anybody to enjoy the film and not get too wrapped up. And it's, it's um, the, you know, did I use a tripod or do I narrate too much or do you not like my opinion? That part of it doesn't matter. I was it, The point of it is to see it from a, a perspective of the average American citizen. And that's why I think it's kind of a cool film. Well, yeah, absolutely, and I think um, this, you know, there were some like as in Net- on Netflix, there's always comments like good or bad. It was definitely a polarizing film. It was either getting five stars or one star, and most of the people giving it one star were pretty obviously people who were brainwashed by whether it was the corporations or by the military to you know to have a party line that you were very clearly not following. <laughs> You know, so they were upset with you, and then there were other people like, "Wow, this is a very sobering look at it." And um, I think that the funny thing is, is that in watching it, because I can be very critical of documentaries at times, because I actually review documentaries all the time. And um, but you you did talk to uh, what I would refer to as bad soldiers, and you talked to good soldiers, and you talked to Iraqis, you know, and you talked to Kurds from you know like different factions of Iraqis. You know, there was. There was a lot of, you know, exposure in different directions, and I think what angered some people is they didn't like the truth being brought out. I mean, there, that one scene that still sticks in my head is the one where they're all kind of in plain clothes. I mean, I presume that they were on leave or something, and, you know, they're all talking like that girl is talking about having sex in a mosque, and, you know, they're all using racist terms, and talking about how frustrating it is that they, you know, they have to wait to be shot at before they're allowed to shoot people, and... You know, that was probably footage that they would rather not be shared, but, you know, it was there, and it was the reality of it, and I think that um, it proves a little bit more just how much in common these uh, wars that we're going through now have, you know, with Vietnam, Um, just that inevitably uh, people who are put in those positions are going to start to think of the whatever they quote-unquote believe the enemy to be, you know, as less than human, um, and I, I imagine that's because it makes it easier for them to justify what they do. Um, and I, you know, and then you, you, but you also painted a very good picture, like of the that particular soldier. He's a, he's a sergeant. I'm going to forget his name, but I'm sure you can remind the audience the fellow who was dealing with uh, that dump. You know, where yeah, they were uh, just, Sergeant uh, Sergeant Layson. Yeah, they were just throwing food and you know usable equipment away. Well, Iraq is in rubble and people are starving and trying to find work and you know, it that that was another really sobering example and that soldier I guess kinda destroyed his career to bring you that story. Um do you want to talk about that, that experience? Yeah, I would love to talk about that. Um one of the biggest bases in the world is the Anaconda base. Uh, in Iraq. It's in Balad, Iraq, about an hour north of Baghdad. And it is the largest military base on the planet for any country. And that base is run 
coincidentally, I do work in National Guard, and I live in Portland, Oregon. And so when I came to cover them, I was interested in the Oregon National Guard, and they ran the base. And so they showed me the dump, and I was shocked at the amount of equipment that was still banded to the pallet that it was shipped over to Iraq on. It had gone directly from the factory in America or wherever, factory in China, to the dump. And yet, meanwhile, there were probably 30 or 40 starving Iraqi children gathered around the the, the barbed wire um, that were willing to risk a bullet to, you know, make a dash for a dash for trash, really. Mm-hmm. And it was just really sad that that the soldiers that were on the guard tower told me that there was no way that they were going to shoot a 12-year-old girl to for climbing under to grab a bag of beef jerky. Mm-hmm. And in the end, the the commanding officer of the base basically gave orders for them to shoot and kill. And I don't know you know, I wasn't there forever. I don't know exactly what happened in the end, but um, it definitely – they definitely never opened up the dump, which I wouldn't even call it a dump. I, I would call it a, um, a, a an extended warehouse of the U.S. military <laughs> because literally there was so much going – I mean imagine 100,000 people, 200,000 Americans in a foreign country, how much waste and – how much, how much food, and I, it's amazing what we throw away as Americans. And, I mean, li- literally, you can see it on the film, there is a lot of material that's going directly from the factory to the dump, including food, usable items, and, you know, we try so hard to do this um, kind of hearts and minds thing, but really hearts and minds is just very simple, and and that is, you know, treat them with some dignity, treat them as human beings, and if you're throwing out, you know, 500 cases of water, why don't you just give it to the people that are starving, that are pushing their faces up against the barbed wire trying to get it? It, it, it seems to me like a very simple concept. Now, weren't they just dumping that to get out of having to properly dispose of it or put it wherever it needed to go? I mean, they, some of that stuff, you're, you know, I remember, for example, like they, I was kind of satisfied to watch that the sergeant actually caught some people in the process of dumping and got to walk over there and dress them down and force them to put the stuff back on the truck and put it where it belonged. You know, but some of that, like, you know, the unopened, like, cases of soda, I remember seeing that, you know, and some of the food that was sitting there, and I'm just like, you know, what's the motive if you're a soldier to dump this stuff? You know, I mean, did 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 they ever like you ever get any idea of that or? Well, I mean, the problem with the military is they drag the bottom of American society, and they then take those kids and they brainwash them into not caring. Mm-hmm. And then when those kids are about to go home again to be redeployed, they take all that stuff that they were sent, the, the Xboxes and the, the, the care packages and the dormitory-style bunks that they built in the barracks, and instead of turning it back into the Army recycling – actually, the Army has a recycling center. So, I mean, you can't be completely um, you know, down on the military because they, they have a proper way for you to redeploy the stuff, but the soldiers were you – know, they're you know, I'm tired, I'm angry, I'm lazy, I'm uh, I'm full of anxiety, I just want to go home, I don't care, let's just take all this stuff 
and let's dump it, throw it in the dump. And meanwhile, there are these starving Iraqi kids that would love to, you know, have your Xbox because they could sell it for probably a year's worth of bread. And instead, it goes in the dump because the soldier doesn't want to fill out some paperwork, simple paperwork, and turn it back in to get it redeployed back out into the military. And meanwhile, the soldiers that are coming on the next deployment, they're bringing the exact same stuff over that's going to wind up in the dump again. Because it wasn't turned back in for the military to reuse it. And on top of that, there's so much competition between the military branches that when the Army leaves, you know, they close the book on it. Because then the Marines coming in later and there's inter-military inner, um, uh, uh, rivalries, then they, you know, they don't pass along to each other what they've learned, what's going on. And it's just, you know, it's one of those times where we really, in Iraq, if you want to sum it up, we were our own worst enemy in Iraq. And that's the bottom line. Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Your film definitely puts some more pieces of the puzzle that I've been trying to get together about the topic of Iraq. I think one of the reasons why it has such an impact on me is, as I mentioned earlier, when I ran for Congress, for whatever reason, there happened to be a lot of Iraqis in, in a, here in Michigan. And I talked to a lot of them, you know, because some of them were my constituents, essentially. And, um, you know, they told me about the situation was, you know, when you guys went over there initially, referring to the United States, we were very supportive. And then we were like, oh, they're, you know, they're going to rebuild our country and everything's going to be great. And then, you know, after a while, uh, it started to feel like we were better off when we had an evil dictator (laughs) in control of our country. Um, because we at least had water and electricity and, you know, our children were not getting cancer at three and four years old or not being born with it for that matter due to weapons grade plutonium floating around in the desert. You know, um, just it's, it's stuff like that, that, uh, we, you know, it's especially, you know, as I had recommended to you earlier and I, I look forward to hearing your, your feedback when you get a chance to watch No End in Sight, um, cause they go into a lot of that stuff. Um, and it, it basically, we, we've created an insurgent factory. It's like we want there to be more insurgents, so we have an excuse to continue this war on quote-unquote terror. Um, you know, and it kind of reminds me of a scene in the movie Platoon uh, where they they suspect that this village might be, you know, might be a Viet Cong village. So they burn it down. They kill a lot of innocent people. And I'm thinking as they're walking away from the village, uh, well, if they weren't VC before, they certainly are now. You know, <laughs> what have you managed to accomplish? Yeah, you're definitely winning some hearts and minds there. Maybe if you shoot a few more children, then they'll then they'll they'll be less inclined to join the Viet Cong. You know, that's it, it comes to the same you know the same issue you see it in Afghanistan too. I watched another documentary called Restapro recently, and that was about Afghanistan and. Uh, a cow had wandered in the Constantina wire, so the soldier shot the cow and ate the cow. And, <laughs> um, you know, it was like, well, this sounds familiar. Yeah, it's Vietnam all over again. You know, um, it just it kind of comes to show you that these kinds of means of stopping, quote unquote, terrorism don't work. You know, you, at that point, all we're really doing is giving them real reasons to hate us, you know, beyond any of the nonsense reasons that might be fed at them by of the religious factions. Um, so I guess uh, another question I usually ask filmmakers is, looking back on the film now, 
is there anything that you wish you had put in the film or anything that you would now looking back on it you wish you hadn't? Well, I wish that I would have had an opportunity to stay with an Iraqi family for an extended period of time in Baghdad and to really see what they go through. You know, all the films out there are all about, you know, the soldiers and the PTSD and, you know, what's it like? You know, even even my film, I, I, I was not given the opportunity to really speak to the Iraqi people. And when they did, they were very suspicious of me. You know, here's this, mm-hmm. you know, middle-aged white guy. You know, what's he doing? He's CIA. I mean, what's going on? And, and it, you know, we don't know the outcome of this thing. So if we bring him into our house, what if it doesn't turn out? There, like, People were very scared, and understandably so. And what I wish I, I would have had the opportunity to do is basically just spend more time both with the local Iraqi people to really see what what how did the war in Iraq affect them day to day. We hear the stories. We hear, you know, we read some blogs, but really to see it, you know, really to see it. Um, and then I wish I would have spent more time with the U.S. military because the soldiers – some of them did so many great things. I mean, they really did, and I showed them in the film, and I'm not going to back off that or sugarcoat that. And other soldiers did really shitty things, and I will not back off that either. And, I mean, we've got soldiers talking about, you know, having sex in a mosque. Right. Which is highly inflammable to other footage of an Apache helicopter uh, lighting up a farmer who's getting off of his tractor to walk away and they're shooting them from an Apache helicopter at night um, to other soldier encounters where, you know, the soldiers are hiring the locals to cut the cane down or they're, they're teaching them to speak Arabic, mm-hmm. which, you know, we forget Iraq is a very poor country. Many people are illiterate, even their own, in their own language. Right. And some American military soldiers went in and hired local Arabic professors to help the locals learn how to speak their own language. Right, so to write and read and write it, yeah. Yeah, so the, the military, in my opinion, is a cross-section of the American public. Some of them are intelligent and thoughtful and compassionate and well-educated, and many of them are uncaring, uh, jarhead, you know, jerks that want to kill everybody. And, and that's actually very... Um, that that's very uh, representative of the overall U.S. population, and I mean you you will meet more Harvard PhDs in the Marines than you will walking around the street in your own town, right? And and that's the fact. And and they're some of them are very smart people, and some of them do very good things, but a lot of them do very bad things. And the ones that are on the front lines are brainwashed to do very bad things, and so. I just wanted to challenge both sides, both the the republic or the the liberals and the conservatives conservatives alike, to question and to take a look at it not from a polarizing viewpoint, but from a, a viewpoint of right versus wrong, not left versus right. right. And that's what that's what the film is about. <laughs> I really like the way you put that. I'm definitely going to use that right versus wrong rather than left versus right. Yeah, because it. I actually was making a comment to someone earlier recently because um, there's all this argument. You know, all right, well, do we want? You know, people are like, well, I don't want four more years of Obama. You know, and then they mention things like Afghanistan and Iraq, and I'm like, 
You know, I'm not an Obama person either, but for you to try to state that if we got rid of Obama that suddenly, you know, that if we had gotten rid of Obama that the war situation would have been better, I would like to remind you a little bit about your history and the fact that it was the neoconservatives, meaning Karl Rove, Dick Cheney, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, you know, who influenced the Bush, you know, administration to go to those wars and get them all started and that I actually feel it's likely that if we had elected McCain, we would have had um an escalation. You know, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that um I'm not saying that Obama is necessarily any better. I just think that uh one of the ways the American people are constantly deceived is to allow themselves to get caught up in this party po- politics crap that is really kind of absurd. You know, we we argue about so many things um and then we blame the presidents for everything. We forget that we have to have a Senate and a Congress in order to even make the government function. Most average American citizens wouldn't even be able to tell you who their congressman is. You know, they they know who their president is. They might not know why they voted for them. <laughs> I did a whole show about that once called On the Subject of Sheeple, where this you know we were going around interviewing people and asking them who they voted for and why, and um, the, the answers that they gave were usually very shallow. Um, but that being I'm said, I'm sorry. Did you call them sheeple? Sheeple. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> it's a reference to the to the sheep from Animal Farm. Ironically, no, I get it. Sheeple. That's good. That's. But yeah, it's it was it's my favorite V Radio episode ever. We played some recordings of people being interviewed talking about Sarah Palin, and then people being interviewed on a beach in Florida, like after a um, Republican primary, they're talking about the people whom they were going to vote for and why. And in most cases, like the the Sarah Palin stuff in particular was really bad because, oh, okay, so you want Sarah Palin to be president, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, what can you tell me about her foreign policy that you like? And they'd be like, uh, you know, uh, do you have any of what 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 of Sarah Palin's policies do you like? I can't think of anything off the top of my head. <laughs> you know, these people right. don't even know why they're voting for the people they're voting for anyway. So it's it's a dog and pony show, and that's why I called it on the subject of sheeple, was to try to, you know, because people are like, well, what is that? Well, what it is is somebody who believes that politics is a, uh, you know, is a popularity contest. When you can not answer a basic question like, oh, foreign policy, you know, when we go to war, um, <laughs> you probably shouldn't be voting. I think there are actually some, you know, people who are underage who probably know more about that than some of the people who are old enough to vote. Um, but anyway, a small tangent. Um, but but basically, uh, you know, I really urge the audience. You know, you can see his film on Netflix. I put a link in the description of this show uh, to a place that you can purchase the film. Um, I love Netflix streaming, though. It's like having a like a having a video store in your computer. <laughs> have one hooked up to my TV. I don't even have cable anymore. I just use Netflix. Um but basically uh you know to check this film out and to kind of get, you know, you really did a good job of of putting a face on the situation that as you put it, you know, it wasn't something you're going to see in the mainstream media. You know, it wasn't, you know, spoon-fed to us. It was raw footage in a lot of ways. And you know, you said that you don't feel it made you look like a good filmmaker. I thought it was great. So, well, thank you. You know, but then again, I mean, you know, I maybe to me it's refreshing because of the fact that it's not overprocessed nonsense. It's like, you know, I can watch a Michael Moore film and he does okay sometimes and sometimes he doesn't, but um it's you can tell when somebody has almost overdone it, when they've Hollywoodized something to the point that 
you know, it's it's homogenized or what's the word I'm thinking about? It's uh, uh, how about manipulative? Well, yes, it's manipulative. Yeah, they they've they've essentially designed it for a specific end. And I think the fact that you know, um, I you know, I think that there will be different activists are going to react to your film in different ways. I think that every activist would learn something from it. Um, I think that you know there because I I, mean, I remember talking to you about this. There are some activists that are very anti-soldier, you know, who might you know uh, they would focus on the negative things and then not think about the positive things you pointed out were being done, you know. Um, and then there are people who are just you know pro-military no matter what who will be offended that you told the truth about the bad things that were being done and, you know, and, and might focus a lot on the good things. And I think that um, especially when it comes to focusing and learning about reality, which is what you're supposed to be doing in this life, um, you know, it's, it's, you got to recognize that there, there is a middle ground in a lot of these stories, that things are not always black and white. And, you know, if, if everything was going all hunky dory over there, why is it that I think it what was it 2009 where we had more deaths, via suicide than we did in the field during the war. Uh, that's true. And I'd like to also point out that in the Vietnam War, 56,000 soldiers died in the jungles of Vietnam, but 58,000 died by their own hands or back in the United States in the 20 years after the war. And the war in Iraq is set to eclipse that mark of suicides and homicides. And right now, Neil, um, we're sitting at around 425 suicides and around 150 homicides. Mm-hmm. And it's it's only going to go up. And, the, you know, the weird thing about that is, to be honest with you, I mean, I was there. There was combat that was happening, but it was nothing like the combat in Vietnam. I mean, it was not Hamburger Hill right. or the Keshaw Valley or any of the big wars, you know, the, the incursion into Cambodia where it was full-on warfare. I mean, in Iraq, it was more like a police sort of riotous. It was like was Saigon, a, more like Saigon. I would. It say. was like more like Saigon. Yeah, it wasn't. Uh, there were not uh, two armies meeting each other in the field of battle like there were in the latter stages of the Vietnam War. Um, you know, so for soldiers to be committing suicide today from the war in Iraq, I'm kind of like, really? I mean, not that I don't have empathy with them, but they they saw a fraction of what combat really is and maybe that's why you know 25 percent of our homeless people are veterans Mm -hmm. and and i think that as much as people you know america is a big country and we can all get into our zones of comfort whether it's the liberal zone or the conservative zone and we can surround ourselves by people that agree with us and we can believe that the rest of the world is all screwed up and the problem is, is that when that all mixes back together again, like in a war, people get confused because they see things, oh my gosh, that don't agree with them. And I think both liberals and conservatives alike have that problem that, you know, I live in Portland, Oregon, in the middle of the city. I'm surrounded by liberals. There's not a conservative in sight. And when I go into the suburbs, I'm shocked at how, con- you know, I'm shocked at how conservative people are mm-hmm. and vice versa. People come in from the from the farms and the the villages and the rural areas outside of Portland, uh, Oregon, and they're shocked by how liberal everybody is. (laughs) And I think that when you go, when you pack all that up and take it to a foreign country where it's all mixed in together, you know, it it can be shocking for people. Or when they see that in a film, like my film, that they can see that, that they're all juxtaposed and on top of each other. One minute you're looking at 
you know, a bomb shelter that the U.S. dropped a smart bomb into in 1992 during the Gulf War One, as you saw, and incinerated 250 people. Uh, or, on top of that, the very next scene, there's Saddam Hussein putting landmines and killing children and blowing their faces off, and there's a landmine hospital, as you saw, you know, also from the film. Right. And so the thing about it is it, liber, liberalism and conservatism is there are layers that are stacked on top of each other when you look at something like a war as a digest, that mm -hmm. there are some good things, not good things, but some things that certainly that Saddam Hussein did that was very screwed up to really hurt and kill and mess up his people. Absolutely. And absolutely. And there was a lot of things the U.S. did that were exactly the same. And I'm not sure who's who wins the kill award, whether it's the U.S. or <laughs> who's killed more Iraqis, the U.S. or Saddam Hussein, I'm not sure. But the point is, is that all killing is bad. And the, I think Americans have got to get out of their, their cocoons that they live in and realize that things are complicated out there. You know, it's a funny thing that you just brought that up because uh, I remember when they were trying to justify the war in Iraq, all of a sudden uh, we care that he gassed the Kurds. You know, all of a sudden, that we're going to talk about that now. And, and they did that, actually, when Sean Hannity, probably one of my least favorite of the talking heads, uh, was talking to Congressman Ron Paul, you know, talking about, well, you know, you know what he did? You know, he, did? he used gas on, you know, on the Kurds. And, and Ron's like, that was like back in the 80s, you know. <laughs> He's like, yes, it's horrible, but that was back in like the 80s. You know, so we're going over there now because of that? Do you really believe that? You know, and then he pointed out, we're the ones who gave him the gas. We sold the gas to, to Saddam Hussein, the United States, when we were propping him up as a as a dictator that was friendly to our oil interests. You know, um, you know, and Hannity didn't really know what to do with that. <laughs> Big surprise. Um, you know, but it was it's horrible that Saddam did that did those things. But when he does those things and he's playing along with you know with with uh, the things that we wanted him to do, like you know, for instance, continue to sell oil in the American dollar rather than in the euro, you know, then then we'll we'll overlook that. But holy crap, you know, um when he starts talking about flirting with the idea of, well, I guess I'm just gonna sell my oil in the euro then, well now we need to invade the country. And I think that um it the things that he did were ter was terrible. But it's it did not motivate the, the United States government to do anything about it until uh, certain people with a lot of money were in a position to get hurt by it. Um, you know, they didn't care about Kurds. You know, I mean, I do. But, you know, the, the idea that, you know, that we're now justified to invade Iraq like 10 years later because of gassing the Kurds is just ridiculous. Um, you know, and I'm glad that the Kurds are doing better. You know, that was another thing your film, you know, really did. I don't think people really talk enough about that, you know, that the Kurds are actually doing pretty good over there now, I guess. Um, you know, and I guess also in retrospect, I mean, you made that film quite a while ago, right? Like how long ago? I made the film in 2004. Right. And and now looking back on it in retrospect, like uh how do you think things have developed, you know, over you know over the years since you made the film? Well, think that's a great question. Thank you. I was hoping that you would ask that actually. Um and that is that I believe that Iraq is going to break up into three separate countries. Mm -hmm. Um I believe that the the Kurds, the Shiites and the Sunnis simply are never going to get along with each other. And the Kurds have already basically broken off. When you enter the, into that area, you have to have a separate visa. Mm -hmm. And it's called Iraqi Kurdistan. 
which mm-hmm. stand part denoting an independent country. The Kurds are the largest ethnic group in the world without their own country, and the the the, the Iraq itself was drawn by the British in World War One. Mm-hmm. Iraq, the political boundaries of Iraq are not even naturally developed by the Iraqi people. They were drawn by the British after World War One to reward them for fighting with the British against the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. And so there is no other country in the world with such a large population of Shiites and a large population of Sunnis all together at once. Most Muslim countries either have overwhelming Sunni or overwhelming Shiite populations, most of them Shiite populations. Um, but only Iraq literally is the Balkans of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And like the Balkans, which Yugoslavia, I was there in 1993, broke up into five – it was a country a third of the size of Iraq and broke up into five countries, Montenegro, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, Macedonia, and I'm forgetting that last one. Oh, no, that's five. And I believe Iraq will break up into three separate countries. It, it, I really believe it will. And we can either make that happen peacefully or we can make that happen with a lot of bloodshed. Keep in mind, you know, India broke up into three countries, uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and India, to stop a civil war that would still be going on today. How did that not happen? Soviet Union broke off 18 countries. Six of them had nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So, And by the way, bloodless. Right. Which could have been World War Three. If you go, if you think back, what could have happened at that time period? So, the the idea that Iraq would break up into three separate countries is not only backed up with three great examples in the 20th century, but has been the only foreign policy that's ever worked. And, and it, yeah, in America, we're always like, keep them together, keep them together. But you know what? That is not necessarily what's right for the Iraqi people. I believe Iraq's going to break up into three separate countries in the next, probably in the next five to ten years, and you can mark my words on that. Well, honestly, the way you—that's a kind of a eureka moment in my head. That's a brilliant solution, um, and you know, I think that uh, I think that's another reason why a lot of people have called for a Palestinian state because it's pretty clear Israel's not really going to be able to work out their problems with the Palestinians. Um, There's know, no doubt that there should be a Palestinian state, but. I, I, getting back to Iraq, breaking up sure. into three separate countries, I believe that if the the world, even if you want to, um, well, I believe that the United States could help Iraq form a three nation oil cartel, similar to Aerobus, mm-hmm. similar to to other um, multinational countries that form corporation, you know, like a, a corporation represented by by many countries, like Aerobus. Sure. Sure. Or other country, uh, comp- uh, companies like that, where the newly formed three nations of the new, you know, of the breakup of Iraq, the three of them by treaty could operate and run and profit from the oil industry as a per capita of each nation, of the population of each country. And therefore, the Sunnis don't have to freak out that the oil is in the Kurdish area, and the Kurds don't have to freak out that the distribution pipeline is in the Sunni area in the south, or the Shiite area in the south. They could all three, by treaty, share the profits, share in the work, share in the, the, the exploration of oil, and 
for once in their life benefit from being the second largest producer of oil in the world. And that is how Iraq could peacefully end what has been a horrible 30 years of existence. Oil has been the biggest benefit, and it's been the biggest main of their existence. Man, I wish uh, you could get those words into the mouth of a political candidate because <laughs> that's honestly, and I think about that all the time. I was like, man, how do we deal with this? You know, and a lot of people are just kind of like leave and pull the plug, you know, and I'm like, okay, great. Well, so we went over there and annihilated their country, which, you know, and I, I don't think we should have done that, but, you know, we need to have some kind of plan because we ruined these people's lives, you know, and if you thought there was terrorism before... <laughs> You know, we we basically rendered those people into a state of apocalypse. You know, they they live in an apocalypse. They live with no water, no food. You know, I mean, um, contaminated. You know, water supply. They we basically rendered them into a third world country or less. You know, and then we wonder why they hate us. You know, <laughs> and there's we, no we, doubt. Of, yeah, ahead. there's no doubt about it. And the sad thing about it, Neil, is that if you go back in time, and I love history, if you go back into the day that the Saddam Hussein statue came down. Mm-hmm. And we all remember that day at Martyr Square sure. when the statue was pulled down. If instead of rolling in to Baghdad with tanks, if we had rolled in with concrete mixers and heavy trucks and construction vehicles, and we had spent our money rebuilding Iraq into a show place of the Middle East, cause, uh, you know, like not quite like Dubai, but maybe more like Kuwait. Where, yeah, Kuwait's a good example. Where we used the American muscle and the American ingenuity, even like Israel, and we used that money to rebuild the infrastructure, and we made a you know, internet service, cell phone service, infrastructure, water, electricity, all, all of that, it, all the way through all of the villages, we would have had no problem with the insurgency at all. The people of Iraq are good people. They are, and they were waiting and hoping that when Warren Buffett buys your house, that he's going to clip the grass. He's not going to pull your wife out of the house and kill her. And that is one of the issues that the Iraqi people really, I think, were very disappointed with, is they really felt like America marching through your streets means you're going to have a better life. And that's, that's how they felt initially, yeah. Well, and that's what happened in Germany. That's what happened in Japan. And, you know, they had a better life. And, and I th- yeah, and, and you're right. Rumsfeld was correct. They did greet us with flowers and chocolates. And the sad thing about it is we had an opportunity. We had about a year. Mm-hmm. We had about a year. The first year when we were there, when I was there, if we would have rolled in there with construction machinery and, and our American ingenuity. Americans, we know how to build stuff. We're good. at We're a big country. And we have a lot of bridges and dams and tunnels and highways. We are good at building stuff. And the Iraqi people, actually, if American had done any research at all on the Iraqi people, Iraq is a very engineering-focused country, and they have a very highly educated workforce. And Iraq actually is a sort of a um, kind of a, a skilled blue-collar type of country that would have been perfect to utilize the skilled labor of Iraq to – Re, with our with our money and their skill and the the subcontractors uh, technology, we could have turned Iraq into like a like a little America. And, and I don't I don't mean like Liberia, 
experiment, but I mean, like a, a, a Western satellite sort of secular Arab country, kind of like Jordan, that I think would have definitely been an, an ally of the United States. And we really missed a civilian opportunity when we focused on military, military, military. I mean, the, the, the Department of Defense was so big, but where was the State Department? You know, where was the rest of the American government, the rest of what is America, and that is technology, construction, know-how, building. Where was that part of America during the war in Iraq? We could have used that. Absolutely. You know, and I've got to once again, you know, take a moment and ask the listeners, you know, if you have not seen this film yet, get an opportunity to go back and look at it. And um, again, I, I also like everything you say there, like when I told you earlier, it really put some more puzzle pieces together with that film. Uh, no end in sight. I was telling you about um, now. Let's take a moment to uh, discuss some of your other films and your future projects as we have about 15 minutes left, and I want to be sure that the listeners get a chance to hear about this. So go ahead and take your your last two films in whichever order you prefer, and we'll discuss those a little bit, and then we'll move on to what we were discussing about your future projects. Uh, Okay, great. Not a problem. Um, My um, latest – well, the next film of note is called Dark Water Rising, and it's also on Netflix – and it is the story of America's first ever massive animal rescue um, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Um, when FEMA rescued all of the people out of New Orleans, the official policy was that people's personal pets were not allowed to be evacuated. And so 100,000 anim- pets, people's pets, you know, cats, dogs, snakes, canaries, whatever, were left behind in New Orleans. And Darkwater Rising is a film that follows the sort of um, like the humane society, like the the, um, the people with matching uniforms and white vehicles with name tags and walkie talkies, uh, the the institution of animal um, uh, 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 the, the animal rescue people versus the animal welfare people, which are more of the PETA type crowd, more of the um, the Greenpeace are even more, you know, more radical than that, and it compares and contrasts the two styles between, like, the Humane Society of the United States versus the PETA and even more radical elements than that, in the race to to save a hundred thousand dying, stranded animals in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita in New Orleans, and it is a raw. It's full of profanity. It's full of graphic images. It's not for the faint of heart. It is definitely the most graphic film I've ever done. But if you really want to know what happened after the people left in New Orleans, you have to watch Darkwater Rising. It was inducted into the Smithsonian in um, a year after it came out. It's part of the permanent collection on Hurricane Katrina. And I really think it tells a story of not just of the animal part of it, and it's not a bleeding heart propaganda piece for the Humane Society or for the animal activists because I show the the downsides of them as well, just like I show the downsides of the soldiers or, or even the downsides of the Iraqi people in uh, inside Iraq. Um, it is a film that shows the, the, the best and the brightest and the worst of the, the back end of Hurricane Katrina, something that nobody's ever seen before. And if you have the courage to watch the film, I promise you will not – be uh, disappointed. And then 
after that, I have eight other films, all of them about world travel, backpacking, markets, places, people, lonely planet type of you know traveling films you can find on Amazon um, where I do country, like uh, Rick Steves or Anthony Bourdain, where I go and travel through countries and, and I do something very similar to Anthony Bourdain, actually, where um, you know, I eat food and I hang out with the locals and, and then that's kind of fun. And, and those are fun films. They're not political and, um, they just celebrate people, people that are forgotten about by Americans and people that have beautiful cultures and have beautiful hearts. And I think that's sort of the positive end of the films that I do. And that is to, you know, let's pull our heads out of our own collective asses and look around and see <laughs> all the other great, wonderful, amazing people out there in the world that, that, love to be loved and recognized and they want the same thing that everybody else wants and that is a better life for themselves a better life for their kids yeah that's actually really powerful i'm glad that um you know i'm also glad you know you're you're telling that story and it's actually kind of hit home as i just really you know realized as i was thinking about it was that there was an effort made to uh basically find homes for those animals you know because they couldn't reunite them all with their owners and a, a good friend of mine actually has a Katrina rescue dog uh, named Katie, and she's a really sweet, you know, boxer, female boxer. And you know, it just—it was interesting that you put that into perspective. It was like, you know, wow, okay, now I now it kind of, you know, it all makes sense that this dog that I go see on a regular basis and you know and pet and interact with was you know a Katrina rescue dog. It, I you know it didn't really click in my head fully exactly what that meant until you just pointed that out. Um, you know, and I, I think that's another thing that, you know, is, is generally not really, it's probably not really talked about as much, um, in, in that these animals that we, we take into our care, you know, <laughs> uh, and then we kind of treat them like they're a nuisance, like they, it was their idea to be there, you know, <laughs> um, and it, it's good to see that, you know, you, you put a face on that particular issue and I actually will watch that film. That looks great. Um, and I'll definitely check out some of your other stuff because I've always been interested in other cultures. And I think that it really does a lot to a human being to be exposed to other cultures, to really get different perspectives. I mean, I have friends who are Mexican, you know, and I've talked to them in length about what life in Mexico is like. And that's changed my outlook on the world. Uh, visiting Ireland changed my outlook on the world. I know a lot of the, you know, I've, I've spoken to people from so many different cultures through my involvement with the Zeitgeist Movement and my radio show, um, and I definitely encourage people to look into that. Now, you were discussing a, uh, a film about the banking crisis. Uh, you know, actually, it hits home with me because, like everybody, uh, you know, I was given a loan um, in 2007 um, to purchase some real estate that I didn't even have to show that I had a job. I mean, I was approved like in five minutes. And, you know, it was the typical countrywide Bank of America kind of, you know, home loan thing. And now, you know, like every, like a lot of Americans, you know, we struggle with our mortgage and we're a little bit behind on our payments and, and the interest rate is, is very high. And, and a lot of, you know, foreclosures are a huge part of America. And as we know, TARP is highly uh, controversial and, and the... Um, the load modification programs are expensive, and America's racking up all this trillion do trillion dollars of debt because the government has given a lot of money to the financial institutions. But the financial institutions are not trickling the money down to the people as mandated by the government 
And I know this is not a new story, but the point is is that there are certain central characters in this, like Bank of America, that is aggressively and actively trying to not allow the average American person whom whom they approved for a loan to begin with to simply modify the terms of their loan to say I don't need to be foreclosed I just if you could just take you know a couple hundred dollars off and take what I have it paid and put on the back end of my loan just you know to add it to the principal I don't want you to forgive it I l- let's just re- kind of renegotiate this here and by the way the government's giving you you know 40 billion dollars to do it and you mm-hmm. can write all the losses off on your taxes and you're being sued for $40 billion to – because you haven't done this. How about after all these motivating factors, how about if you just renegotiate things? It's really not that hard actually. And they're, they uh, and other banks also are refusing to do it. And I think that that's – it doesn't necessarily – it's not super interesting or exciting. But I think that if you – own real estate and you're having problems making your payments and your bank is not working with you, I think it becomes very interesting. And, you know, America is a is a land of land owning. America was founded on the Homestead Act, that if you served America and its military um, forces in the 1800s, you weren't paid in money. You were given a 40 by 40 homestead tract of land. And America was founded on the notion of owning real estate. And the people that founded the United States came from Europe, and in Europe during that time period, the monarchy owned all the land. And so home ownership and land ownership in America is fundamental to who we are. And for our financial institutions to not only make such massive amounts of interest off of your home loan, but then to not allow you to renegotiate after they've got you in the noose, I think is is treasonous. And for them to even get money and be sued by the federal government to by not doing it and then they still don't do it, it's it's just it's just terrible. And there's thousands of people, hundreds of people every day that are losing their houses and it's it's not right. It really isn't. Listen, first we lost our manufacturing, then we lost our education, and now we're losing our houses. I mean, what else is next? I, I, I really don't know what else is next after this. Yeah, especially just it's like a downward spiral, and like it has no end in sight, you know, and it's <laughs> – um, and interesting enough, like I was talking to you about off this off the air is, you know, Occupy Detroit goes out and occupies homes where these sorts of things are happening. And in many cases, the stories they hear are just ridiculous. Like um, this one couple, their church had come together and was actually going to pay off their loan, was just going to go ahead and buy the house. And the bank still refused because they wanted to foreclose and resell the home. You know, it's that's the thing that stinks the most about all that bailout nonsense to me is that not only did they get to give out all the loans and then get a bailout so that they got their money back. They also got to keep all the properties they foreclosed on. So it was like double dipping. You know, we're going to go basically loan, you know, get out money to these people and then we get the houses and we get the loans paid back 
you know, it's like they get their money and they get the property that the loans were taken out for in the first place, which it just it seems so backwards. Um, you know, and I guess certain parts of Iceland, but not all of Iceland, certain parts of Iceland, they actually bailed out the uh, the, pe- the homeowners rather than the corporations. Um, but yeah, um, I look forward to that, actually. And when you do finally get around to doing that, I hope that we can do another show where we discuss like your experiences in, in gathering information on that topic. And I would love to write a review for you. Um, so when that happens, let me know. Absolutely, I will do it. And, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, pick out my film and to give me the opportunity to pontificate about uh, the war in Iraq and, and history. And, and you know, there's going to be a certain point where we either want to see the truth for the good and the bad side of it, or we don't. And I think both liberals and conservatives have to have to embrace that. And neither side has the exclusive domain of the truth. I mean, they're, they're, they're to be a true progressive, one has to look at all sides of the issue. And, and I think that if there's going to be hope for humanity, it's going to be hope in empathy. And that's what I, I hope that, that listeners take away from this um, interview tonight is to have empathy and to understand the plight of another person and to know that we're all looking for the same thing and to know that i can all boats can rise in a tide i can i can benefit and you can benefit at the same time without me benefiting at your expense and i think that's the central message of my films central message of my life and it's a central reason why i am active and 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 am an activist because i care about other people and if they don't have a good life how can i have a good life People tend to forget that we're all part of the same symbiont circle. We all live on this planet, and especially as the uh, population goes up and the effects of technology bring us closer together, the planet gets effectively smaller, and we're going to have to learn how to get together and work together because eventually it's going to be as if we're all in the same, you know, uh, the, everything we do is going to impact another person on the Earth, and that's uh, a one way you have to look at it if, if we as a species are going to survive. So I want to thank you, Mike, for being on tonight. And um, if you would uh, stay on the uh, on the line a little bit, you know, just after the show, I need to ask you just a couple of questions off the air. Not many. I know you got to go. Um, I want to thank you for being on tonight. Um, and uh, once again, everybody, you're listening to V Radio. Uh, please visit my website, v-radio or v-radio.org. Uh, there you can click archives and check out other shows like this one. I've interviewed many other documentary filmmakers, activists, scientists. Uh, political candidates, actual elected candidates, senators, congressmen, presidential candidates. Um, And I'm essentially, as I was saying earlier, publicly funded alternative media. I work for you. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm going to leave you with some parting words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.